When the provider learns of an investigation, they should retain experienced white-collar healthcare counsel immediately. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, I'm delighted to have back my partner, Bart Daniel, uh, to talk about investigations, both civil and criminal. And uh, we as a law firm, Nelson Mullins, and Bart has substantial experience in this area. So I want, Bart, before we get into the questions, just give our listeners your background in this area. Okay. Thank you, Bob. First, it's a pleasure, and I thank you for having me on this podcast. I've always enjoyed it and find out that I learned something new from you or uh, every time <laughs> we have it. Well, by way of background, when I was in law school, I worked my way through, and I, I, didn't, I was at the worked at the state attorney general's office, did a lot of health care cases, particularly um, uh, medical board matters involving physicians or nurses uh, that were getting in trouble. And I sort of, I was a little bit of an errand boy kind of thing, right? I did a little bit of everything. And then when I actually finished law school and passed the bar, they hired me full time. And I did um, white, I was hired for the white collar or the economic crime unit. It was a federal grant. But then I also did on the side, for if you had to have a federal agency, so I did the medical board, the nursing board, and the dental board, in addition to my responsibilities as a white-collar prosecutor. I then uh, did that for two years, and um, I went to the feds, uh, United States Attorney's Office, for the next four-plus years as an assistant United States attorney. And I, I, I did defend some, um, initially I was a civil attorney. And I defended uh, medical malpractice cases, uh, a good number of those. I tried a good number of those on behalf of the government doctors. But I also prosecuted white collar cases, uh, fraud cases, if you will, almost all of them. And I did that for some four years. Went into private practice, did the same thing, except on the defense side. I did that for a little shy of four years and then was appointed by the first President Bush to be United States attorney for the District of South Carolina. Um, I served that a little over three years. And then returned to private practice where I've been ever since. And my focus has always been exclusively defending white collar criminal cases and, and civil fraud, healthcare investigations. So that's pretty much much, much my background. I and some uh, former federal prosecutors and current federal prosecutors have written uh, three books on um, healthcare fraud and collateral consequences. Uh, and it just discusses uh, civil and criminal investigations in the process, as well as uh, specifics of the False Claims Act. Uh, we're on our third edition now. 
Yep. And I'm going to pump another episode where I interviewed you dealing with the Toomey case. I'm, we're not going to talk about Toomey, except yeah. I'm going to say Toomey. Maybe I say three or four times just so people understand Toomey, Toomey, yeah. Toomey. We yeah. understand that case. Yeah. And uh, Bart was very much involved in, in that case. So uh, we've got uh, the, the depth and breadth uh, for these type of investigations. So I've got like seven questions I would like to ask you on this episode. So question number one is, why now is there such an emphasis on civil and criminal investigations in the healthcare industry? It all goes back to money, right? The notorious bank robber in the 1930s was a guy named Willie Sutton. And when he was finally apprehended after a series of, of major bank robberies, a reporter, as he was coming out of the courthouse in cuffs with the FBI uh, agents, on, one on each arm, asked him, Willie, why, why do you rob banks? And he said, because that's where the money is. <laughs> so you just just as the case with Willie Sutton, you follow the money. You go to where the money is. And the government, when the government spends its money, you will see thereafter uh, investigations and prosecutions because enforcement follows the money. Always remember, enforcement follows the money. In, in this particular case, you have a great sum of money being spent on health care. By way of example, and this surprised me uh, when I was doing some of my research, but the government spent, as a country, 5% of our gross domestic product in 1960. That number jumped to 20% of GDP in 2020. But just in the two years since, 2022, that number skyrockets to $4.2 trillion or 25% of our gross domestic product yeah, on health care alone. Yes. So that tells you why the government is so ingress- aggressively um, investigating and enforcing the fraud laws. Yeah, and we may have this uh, the, the bubble of the uh, largest generation in our country. And so maybe that's what's driving some of this, yeah. but it may not. So. Tell me, how does a healthcare investigation begin and how might a provider learn that they're under investigation? And I, I, when I was in-house, you know, I always wanted to um, understand what was coming in from payers so I can sense whether or not we were under investigation. So how does right. that begin? Yeah, well, there are a number of early warning signs where, you, where you've learned that there is an investigation uh, into a provider. And one of them may be, you know, it could be what, what seems to be a routine audit by HHS or the physical intermediary, or it could be a, a rack audit, which is, you know, we call them private bounty hunters because it's the recovery audit contractor program, and they come in independent. The government uh, has provision for it. They come in and they get a percentage of whatever they file, whatever they find the mistakes you make. So it's in their interest to find, to be as nitpicking as possible. But you could also get an administrative demand. That's where the agency, either an OIG agent, an Office of Inspector General agent, or the FBI, they issue an administrative subpoena signed by the special agent in charge asking you for certain records. Uh, the next way you could learn is you could get a civil investigative demand. That's a step up because that's the, that's the federal prosecutor. It's an assistant, United States attorney, a civil assistant, signs the uh, the uh, civil investigative demand and asks for records. They can ask for records, documents, but they can also require you to sit for sworn, te- sworn testimony. 
again, next step up, ratcheting it up in the process, if you will, is uh, a federal agent interview. And it could be a state attorney general agent if it's Medicaid fraud involved or allegations of Medicaid fraud. But the agent could be an Office of Inspector General agent, OIG, or it could be an FBI agent. And usually they go to interview former employees first. I had a case just the other day where uh, a hospital provider called me and said, um, we've got, we've got, we've heard that there, there's an agent that's interviewing two of our former employees. Should I be concerned? <laughs> and I told him, absolutely, you should be concerned. And, and sure enough, they told us, we dug a little bit and found out the assistant U.S. attorney that was running the investigation, we called her and we've engaged early to be able to gather as much information as possible. After the agent interview, uh, a much more invasive is and much more serious is a grand jury investigation. That's a federal grand jury subpoena. And if, if, if you were to get that, you're either a witness or a subject or a target of that investigation. And that's signed by a criminal assistant United States attorney. And the next ratcheting up even higher than that is a target letter or a subject letter. And that means that you have been identified as a subject or a target. And a subject means there's criminal activity afoot, and we believe that you've been involved with it. A target is much more, target letter is much more pointed. You're the target means that we believe strongly that there's a criminal violations and that you're right there uh, in the middle of it. It doesn't mean you're going to necessarily get indicted, but it's much more likely if you're considered a target or classified as a target to become a defendant than if you're not. And finally, the most invasive and extreme form of learning about an investigation is the execution of a search warrant uh, at your place of business. And it, that, when you know that happens, the assistant U.S. attorney has to present an affidavit, some extensive information signed by a federal magistrate. So that means it's a court-ordered search and seizure. And you know, every time I've ever had a client uh, have uh, the execution of a search warrant at their place of business, they say the same thing almost universally, that it was the Gestapo came in. Forty or 50 agents came in at the same time. And that is what they do. They come in and they have FBI on the back or OIG on the back or federal agent on the back of windbreakers. And they come with a show of force. And I, and I learned when I was an assistant United States attorney, the reason why they do that with that show of force is they don't want anybody to do anything stupid. Because as long as you want to you want to control the area and keep everybody calm and do, the, the agents have a right to do their business and they don't want anybody doing stupid things that's going to get them in trouble and sort of raise the level of the um, investigation. That will be a subject of a future episode is what to do when a subpoena is issued. So there are many steps and Bart has huge experience in this on, on what to do. And you know, that will be a future episode. Let me ask you a question regarding about if a provider first learns that there is an investigation, and this is going to be maybe a quick answer, what should they you do? And I'm going to say, call Bart or call <laughs> Bob. So, right. uh, yeah, you need yeah. to you need to bring in your legal defense attorneys, whether it's white collar or criminal defense attorney. And, you know, Nelson Mullins has a huge 
deck of players that can assist in this, and we are massively in this space. Yeah, there are other law firms are out there, so I'm I'm trying to be you know sort of general in this, but um, obviously I'm with the law firm of Nelson Mullins as well as Bardas, and uh, you know we have that that deck and that capability. So let me jump to the next one: is counsel who defends investigations. What are your initial steps? You want to meet with the prosecutor and determine the uh, nature and scope of the investigation, okay? Is it systemic all across the system or is it isolated? Is it a, is it a renegade employee that appears that's off on their own doing something? And that happens many times, particularly when you have people in sales who are just trying to get a commission. They may be selling as fast as they can, but not complying with any of the rules. And that, that's why compliance and training is so important. So I think that's, that's the key right there. Yeah, and, and then, should the client, or if you, you believe that we are a target, should they conduct an internal investigation? And, and maybe this is a question of priority. Yep. Do we first contact BART, or do we do the internal investigation? And then how can that be? <laughs> I gave a presentation once that said, how can you screw up an investigation? Yeah. And, uh, so I'm going to toss that's good, that to well, you. Well, that's, that's why you should not. And I'm not saying it does not happen. And I'm not saying companies don't do it, but you should not conduct the internal investigation initially other than get, other than gathering some limited facts. But you should get involved the white collar uh, health care counsel just as soon as you possibly can. And that's because if your in-house counsel or your COO or one only the company officials, the providers officials conducts an investigation, they can be fraught with problems such as is the attorney-client privilege protected? It is not, okay? And what if uh, what if whoever's conducting the investigation seems to tell the, the, the witnesses that they're talking to that you really shouldn't talk with investigators or agents? Well, that's another no-no because that can be possible obstruction of justice or tampering with a witness. Again, it would not be privileged. And remember, many times the devil is in the house. I mean, you, one of your own employees may very likely be the whistleblower. And I've had that happen numerous times. That's why I'm always very careful when I interview witnesses or prepare witnesses to meet with the government. I'm very careful because the whistleblowers don't tell you. And it's happened to me any number of times. So you really have to have outside experience counsel who knows how to be cautious, but also get to the bottom of what's happened and gather as much information as possible. Yeah, and I'm going to add to what Bart just said. I've got a client right now that I'm receiving texts because they, they get onto our firm website. They know my cell phone number and they start to text me questions about what's going on. You know, your antenna should be going way up you know, when those type of things are occurring. So let me flip into the discussions that you would have Bart, uh, with respect to prosecutors, agents, and auditors. Yeah, I think one of the things you want to do is uh, have a very early discussion. I generally call the assistant U.S. attorney or the Department of Justice lawyer, and I try to set up a face-to-face -face meeting. I don't bring anybody else with me because I find that they're much more candid and open if it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation rather than I don't take notes. I, I said, when I, when I leave the meeting, I will immediately jot down notes. 
But when I'm in the meeting, I don't take down notes because I think it chills the conversation and discussion. I want to be able to gather as much information as possible as soon as possible. And I think that way, the way to do that is a face-to-face -face meeting. Uh, you know, Zoom just does not work as well and telephone works uh, least of all. So I try, but I also, I also re meet regularly. I always tell, used to tell clients early and often with the assistant U.S. attorney. And the reason why is because the focus of investigation changes. It develops. It evolves. And what the we used to have this saying that when the, when the camel, the federal camel gets its nose under your tent or inside your tent, it looks all around. It exactly. doesn't just look for what the initial allegation is. And I can tell you invariably, I would say close to 50 percent of the cases that I've handled in my 40 plus year career is what the, the allegation that gave rise to the investigation is not what's ultimately pursued. It's something that the camel found under that tent. So that's why you want to continue. You want to know burying your head in the sand is the worst possible thing that you can do in a healthcare investigation. You want to learn. You want to evolve. You want to be able to address the issues as the prosecutor. So if the issue changes, if the focus changes, you want to be able to go and defend that, gather as much information to refute those charges and convince the assistant U.S. attorney, that those charges simply are not true. Give them the rest of the story, the other side of the story. Exactly. And for the listeners, go to Bart Daniel website on our Nelson Mullins website. He does not look like he's been practicing for 40 years. So I just want to throw that out there. So <laughs> last comment uh, or question for you is what are the possible ramifications related to you know, these investigations? And here is what I'm going to call the parade of horribles. And I always get and in part, I'm, I'm assuming that you have when I get a CEO or CFO or general counsel on the line, they're going to say, well, tell me what could be the possible negative ramifications of this. And I said, I can give you the parade of horribles, but I'm going to scare you to death you know, with that. And you know, ultimately could lead to jail time. But, you know, so talk to us about these possible ramifications and how we can talk clients down off the law if they get appropriate legal counsel and we can figure out who is the right person or people that are you know, providing this uh, the, this possible uh, overcoding or right. overcompensation of a physician. We, normally what happens, these investigations last anywhere from a year and a year to a year and a half to two years. And if it's a False Claims Act investigation, it may last much longer. I've got some investigations that have lasted three, four, five years before it starts to bump up against the statute of limitations. I want everybody to hear that. Yeah, because that is a huge emphasis because a lot of people think you, we can get out of this in six months, you know, but these things can take up to three years or yeah, more. Yeah, they, they really can. So what we do, I spend all my time meeting periodically, as I mentioned, with the prosecutor, always in constant communication so that as the focus of the investigation changes, I'm gathering information to refute whatever the new focus of the investigation is or to be able to explain the benign nature of the conduct in the new investigation. And so generally speaking, we'll knock out five or six in a row uh, allegations that just don't have any merit. But 
then you get down to maybe there's one issue left or two issues left. Uh, if you can't convince the prosecutor to close his or her file and go away, basically, and the matter be over, you may have to have some sort of civil settlement. That would be the next step up, a civil settlement. And let me tell you, a civil settlement is much better than going through a False Claims Act trial. The ramifications of that, the penalties for that are draconian. I mean, the penalties are as much as 11000 per claim up to 22000 per claim. It's really, it's escalates, it's, it's indexed to inflation. So the next up, though, is, and, and you've got not only treble damages, but you've got damages per claim or penalties per claim. And that's that's the penalty we talked about. Then you could have next, it could also go, really go south fast, and that is a criminal prosecution. If there's criminal prosecution, it's likely that you could go to jail. Um, and that's that's just the, the, the facts of it, because it's based on the amount of the alleged fraud, and it's the gross amount. Not You don't get to deduct expenses. Whatever you build the government or attempted to build the government would be considered the amount of the intended fraud. And, and that amount would go right to a fraud table. And I can tell you it's a very low threshold before you begin seeing active jail time. Um, and then, and then also people also, fold you know, with the settlement. If, if the, those type of numbers are flashed in front of a board of directors, they're going to say settle this thing because we don't want it to go any further. That's right. And I defended the Toomey Hospital case. And in that case, it, you really you really saw where the numbers just exponentially increased uh, because it started off with really only a million dollars an intended loss, but it expanded greatly out with that. Instead of just outpatient services, they said that the entire physician uh, relationship was tainted. And so all of their in-service, 22 physicians in-service services were also considered uh, as payment when, when the government paid for that as part of the fraud. And then um, that's what gave rise to the $437 million ultimate verdict against uh, the government, excuse me, against uh, Toomey Hospital. Yeah, and for our listeners, um, I, I have an interview with Bart where we've talked through the Toomey case. I encourage all of you to listen to that episode uh, because it really does, you know, set up the parade of horribles that could happen. So at this point, and I think we've got maybe two other episodes that are now springing up because of this episode. So our, our listeners love to hear you talk, Bart. So I want to invite you back for those and you, you and I can talk. But at this point, let's talk about the three Captain Integrity punch points for this episode today. Okay. Well, first, I think uh, my first Captain Integrity takeaway would be when the provider learns of an investigation. They should retain experienced white collar healthcare counsel immediately. I.e., Bart. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and the second is have that attorney meet with the assistant U.S. attorney or Department of Justice lawyer to determine the nature and scope of the investigation. And then finally, if the conduct that's given rise to the allegation is anywhere near borderline or over the edge, over that line, Cease or stop that conduct immediately. Amen. So, Bart, uh, as we close this episode, 
Uh, can you provide our listeners with your contact information? Certainly. My, uh, my email is uh, bart.daniel at nelsonmullins.com, B-A-R-T dot Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, no S, at nelsonmullins.com. And my cell phone number is 843-813-2200. It's 843-813-2200. And Bob, thanks again for having me on the show. Well, oh, thank you, Bart. And this has been a great episode. And so we look forward to a couple more episodes that yeah, we're going to that. plan. Thank you. We'd love to come back. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.